Let us now turn to read the scripture reading in Mark 13. And I'll be reading the first 13 verses of Mark 13. Mark 13, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines and troubles. There will These are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourself. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or, or pre premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and to father his child. And children will rise up against parents, and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. <clears throat> The title of the sermon is Cats and Bags. You've heard of the phrase that the cat was let out of the bag. That comes from the idea that cats are not very happy in bags. And that uh, the cat, when the cat is let out of the bag, it comes out usually mean as a... Uh, the claws are slashing this way and that, ready to bite anybody. Letting the cat out of the bag is not a happy thing. But it's, a, it's a, 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 a phrase or a word picture that's used for when something is announced that, um, uh, that is a surprise. The cat in the bag uh, can, can normally be pretty quiet, but when the cat is let out of the bag, then all kittiness breaks loose uh, in the worst way. Back to... to you know, putting the cat in the bag is a very difficult thing. You think of dropping, you know, taking the cat by the back of the neck and trying to get him inside that bag, and the, you know, like a burlap bag, and the claws are going this way. Cats do not like to be uh, kept up like that in a bag. So, I think the way you have to do this is you put have the cat on a table or something like that, and put the bag over the cat from the top, and then then cinch up the bottom, and you know, put the bag, in, and then you. 
then if you want to really aggravate the cat, you know, you whirl them around. No, that's not. <laughs> Cats do not like bags. And uh, when they come out of the bag, they are, it's a mess. Well, that's what Jesus does here. He will even be, this is, once he says this, he will be accused of this. He'll be accused of saying that it was a good thing or that, uh, that uh, he was going to he was going to destroy the temple himself. You can imagine this being said. This and it, it, you see, it's not very elaborate here. He just he says it. Afterwards, the disciples ask him, "What do you mean? How did this come to pass?" That sort of thing. But when he says it, it's just a simple statement of what what would happen. But for the rest of his life, these words would haunt him in a sense. Not really haunt him because he understood them, but. It would certainly haunt the people around him and would be used in accusation against him as a blasphemy against the temple. As if he, by his power, by his personage, had some control over the temple. Well, he did, but they didn't know it. They were not aware of it then. They were not willing to accept it then, but it was part of him being the Lord of the church, the Lord of Israel, the Messiah, the king, the prophet, priest, and king who was to come. And he lets this out of the bag. They're walking out of the temple one day. So these things happen to Jesus, amazingly. They're just walking out of the temple. And one of his disciples is amazed at the building that's there, at the, the uh, architecture and at the mass of it, the significance of it. And the disciples, just as one of us might naively do, you know, you go and you take a trip and you see how things look and they, they catch up your eye and Sometimes it's one of our children, sometimes it's us, but we say, you know, look at that seashore, look at that sunset. In this case, it was a building. So one of the disciples remarks on the beauty of the building. Normally, that's just agreed to. Somebody else would say, oh, yeah, that's really great. I, I always love to be here. I like to look at that. But in this case, Jesus adds something else. How do, where does he get this from? He gets this because he is the divine son of God, because he is the Messiah, because he is a holy God and holy man, because he knew things in his deity that would be shared in some way with his humanity, and he knew things in his humanity in a kind of intuitive way that went way beyond the average person's intuition. So this, this, this points to the deity of Christ, the wonder of Christ, the greatness of Christ, this simple thing that he says. What does he say? He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. This would be like somebody going by the Twin Towers in New York City before they were destroyed by our terrorists. They'd say, See these great buildings here, these two great buildings? They shall all come tumbling down. There'll be, a, there'll be a wreck. All the stones and the steel and the scrap will be piled upon one another. Only good to be taken off, carted off to some dump where the twisted steel and um, building materials would be heaped up. See, and somebody would say, oh, well, you know, what do you mean? And it would definitely get them talking. Who is this man that would say something like this? Are we following a crazy man that makes this kind of a prediction about the temple? 
think about that. The temple was uh, this, this glorious place that had been built up by this time. It had been uh, ever since the Babylonian captivity. It, 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 it was built the first time by Solomon after David's son, and it was it was a great it was a great building then. But God had come with a curse, and the Babylonians had destroyed the temple at one time. <clears throat> it was rebuilt, at least modestly, during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. But then that was 400 years before uh, the New Testament era. And during the Roman era, during the New Testament era, King Herod had made, uh, who was partly uh, Jewish, partly Rome, Romish, uh, he had made many adaptations and many improvements to the temple, so that in Jesus' day it was fairly, it was a fairly glorious building. How in the world could Jesus predict that this glorious building and the stones were huge that were built that used on the walls? How could Jesus be accurate with the fact that this this house would be would be taken down or broken down? Who would do it? How, how could it? What would be the circumstances of the raising of the temple? But this is what Jesus talks about. Now, when he says this, to fully appreciate the wonder of the disciples and the skepticism, their skepticism, their question, you've got to think back, what does this mean? Uh, this was a place for God to meet with his people, like in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Originally, God had had a place to meet with his people where? In the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. God would come and he would visit them in the Garden of Eden. It was a blessed place. Everything worked. Everything was in order. Everything was in harmony there. And God would come and it was not a big thing for him to come to the Garden of Eden and fellowship with Adam and Eve because everything was there. It was before the fall. It was before things had been radically altered by their disobedience. After that, then God had prophesied that he would again be with his people. And he would fellowship with them. And the fulfillment of that, he, he literally uh, lived with and visited Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs and the people. But then through that, he promised a place where he would meet with them, which was the tabernacle, where he would tabernacle or camp out with them, literally. A tabernacle was a tent, a kind of a, a fancy tent, but God would uh, would camp out with them and fellowship with them. But the new, the new key was that he would fellowship with them after he instituted a sacrificial system whereby they could act out and be assured that their sins were forgiven them by the death of these beasts of blood that would be bought, brought into the temple and be sacrificed on behalf of his people. But on the basis of the sacrifice, they could have fellowship again. People today, liberalism, liberalism thinks that they can have fellowship with God easily. They don't need the bloody Christ. They don't need the sacrifice to fellowship. God is blessed to have people who want to come and to share time with him. But that is not what the tabernacle taught in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It taught that it was a big thing, a huge hurdle to cross, to have fellowship with God. And all of that took place in the temple, in the tabernacle, which then 
during Solomon's reign, early on in Solomon's reign, God allowed David and his line to build, to build a more permanent house for him. And they called this the Temple of Zion or the Temple of God on Mount Zion, on the heights of the that range of mountains there. It's not like the Swiss Alps, but it is a high place uh, where uh, Jerusalem was built on a ridge. And you can see, uh, if you see pictures of the right, right angle, like if you see pictures from the temple itself, it falls off. It falls off directly into the Kidron Valley. You can see the heights, and it's in kind of the wilderness area, but it's it's on the high places of the wilderness area. And so that was a glorious thing that God did in that case. But then God had made a covenant with Israel, and God had said that he would be with them as long as they kept covenant with him. And so Zion, or the, the temple in, in Jerusalem, was conditioned on them keeping covenant with God. And he told them, if you break covenant with me, I'm going to curse you. If you keep covenant with me, I'm going to bless you. If you break covenant with me, I'm going to curse you. And remember, he took all of it, all the people of Israel up near Shechem, uh, up near up in the area of Samaria. He took them and he, he put them on two different mountains up there, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And he said, Mount Gerizim stands for the blessing, and Mount Ebal stands for the curse. And so he, he, he had the people of God acted out there so that they'd get this straight. He said, if you obey the covenant, you'll be blessed as the people on Mount Ebal. And if you, if you rebel against me, I will curse you. And there will be many people cursed like the people on Mount Ebal. Now, which do you want? And so the people had it graphically acting out for them. They, they, were part, they took part in the play. And I can imagine the conversations. Everybody, everybody afterwards, everybody wanted to get off of Mount Ebal. They said to themselves, we want to be, we want to be on Mount Gerizim. We, we don't want to be over there at Mount Ebal and be under the curse of God. But what happened was the people got looser and looser. They dabbled more and played more games with the law of God. Until the day came where God just took them off the land. He brought the Babylonians down. They took them away as captives. Remember, they put fish hooks in their cheeks, led them over in long lines of slaves back to Babylon. They became the slaves of Babylon. Why? Because they had forsaken the Lord their God, says Jeremiah. They'd forgotten him. They pretended that he didn't exist. Just like today, people all these university professors, they pretend that you can uh, erect your life or build your life, and there's no need for the living God in the midst of your life. There's no need to build your business or your culture or your science or whatever else. There's no need to build that on me, people say. And so the very first point of uh, the Renaissance and, and Enlightenment humanism from some hundreds of years ago was that man was a law unto himself. He could, he could determine what was right and wrong and he could run his society perfectly well without any mention of the Lord God. And thus, we have today the doctrine of the separation of church and state. And as I've explained to you before, that is the, that is the primary doctrine of our day. Separation of church and state. But what they mean by that 
in the Bible, there is a separation of church and state that's legitimate. But what they mean by that, that today is a separation between God and the state. They're, they're, the state can do perfectly fine, and the laws of the state are perfectly adequate without any reference to the living God. And that's a huge part of the debate today. But when Israel did that, God showed his wrath and his anger by sending the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. They knocked its walls down, sort of like was being said here by Jesus today. But then, uh, God in his mercy, he brought the Jews back from uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they began to rebuild the temple. And it wasn't as glorious as it was before, but at least it was a semblance. When they were done, it was a semblance of his former self. And that was the temple that then kept getting added to, kept getting uh, 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 rehabbed and uh, refurbished until for, for four centuries, until the coming of our Lord Jesus, when it was in fairly good shape again. It was, it was glorious, as is testified here by the disciples. And so it's this long story of covenant history and redemption history that, that we see being capsulized here by Jesus when he says that all of this will be knocked down. Now, when you think about this long, laborious route that the Lord had taken his people to establish this temple, then you get some idea of why it would be shocking to the disciples that Jesus would say this. And why it would be so offensive to the religious authorities today. They're saying to themselves, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus who would dare to say that that which we have accomplished in 400 years or more uh, is going to be dashed apart or destroyed by Whomever. And they, they suggested that it was he who would destroy it. That was one of the accusations that he brought against it. They didn't, But they didn't ask him what he meant, did they? No. They just surmised. They just brought it as a charge against him because they thought they could bring trumped-up charges against Jesus. But that's not what he meant. Um, Jesus meant that, um, that well, what, what Jesus was getting to was that God was going to build up a new temple not made of stones, he says, but made of flesh and blood and the Spirit of God, namely the Messiah. That there was going to be a new temple constructed on the foundation of Jesus and his work. And that was going to be even more glorious than that which has gone before. Now he doesn't, that's just part of the story that we'll see here in the future. But that's not what he's speaking about here. Um, today, in any elaborate sense, uh, but that's the that's to which our Lord points. Um, now that was a big cat to be let out of the bag, and we find literally we find out that this happened in seventy A.D., about thirty years after thirty-five years after this took place here. After Jesus tells the story, it take, takes place. Now, in the intervening year, there's, so there's 30, after Jesus crucified and resurrected, there's about 35 years until Titus, Roman, the Roman general Titus, comes and he totally destroys the place. Again, like was done in, Bab or in, in uh, 432, I think it was when, uh, when the temple was destroyed uh, 
by Babylon. But um, there is a there is a, a, a there are some years that separate this event here from that destruction then and then then what what the people were asking Jesus you see in the Gospel of Matthew they were asking him two questions although they didn't understand the two questions. They were asking him, when will, when will be the end of time? Because they associated this with the end of time, the second coming. So they're asking him, what, when, when, when will be the second coming, the end of time, and when will be the destruction of the temple? They ask it as one question. So in the answer that we get here, we get to, he makes references to two things. But one thing that you can easily see here from this answer, we see where he's, he's explaining to them, how this would not take place immediately. How they wouldn't know when it was going to take place, and how it would be, it would, that there would be many things, especially in terms of sufferings, that would take place. And he warns them to steal themselves, to be ready for the sufferings. He tells them that they will be uh, that they will be persecuted in their synagogues, that they'll be beaten. And he tells them that father and mother and child and they'll be set against each other. And so this, in, in the best kind of preparation, this prepared the people, the early, the New Testament Christians, this prepared them for a time uh, before the raising of the temple for them to be uh, prepared and they, they could deal with it better. This is brought out even more powerfully in the Gospel of Matthew, where you can see the two, the two, the two events talked of more clearly, but it's the same passage of Scripture. But this passage brings out a number of things that are really neat. And that is, um, Jesus says, first of all, that um, he says, don't be deceived. Many will come in my name and other many false messiahs will come. And there were, there were many false messiahs who appeared before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It was a time of high messianic excitement and messianic excitement. Um, uh, 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 appearances because they had not accepted Jesus as the real Messiah and so then God sent a number of counterfeits during this time just before the judgment would take place and um, so Jesus said when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and there were wars and rumors of wars before the raising of the temple in 70 AD there was great political tumult in the Middle East and nation did rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And, uh, of course, uh, before, the, before the raising of the temple, there were both literal and figurative earthquakes taking place. The kingdom of Israel was shaken to its core by their obstinance before the Lord, by their rejections of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks of these as the beginning of, of sorrows because the sorrows would continue on through the through the age after the raising of the temple sorrows would continue and and uh, these famines and things like this would continue on and they're continuing today and they will continue until the second coming but again these two things these two events are being conflated together here somewhat and Jesus but his and then his warning in verse 9 is watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogue. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, and for a testimony to them. And he says, don't, um, and, and the gospel must be preached to all nations. And this is one of the great announcements 
Before the second coming will take place, we know that the gospel will be preached to all the nations of the world. And um, then he, he, tell, he promises the people, or sort of encourages them, he says, when they, when they arrest you and deliver you up, not if they do, but when they do, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you at that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Now this is an extraordinary statement. Normally we would say that the only people that speak by the Holy Spirit directly are prophets and apostles. But Jesus says here that when we, if we are martyred, if we are brought before councils and our lives are taken away, he says that at that point, at that time, the Holy Spirit will animate us. And, we, and what, when we speak, we, we're speaking through our own minds. But whatever truth we speak, It'll be a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's really remarkable. And then he says, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents. Now, when the temple was raised in the time of the Babylonian assault, the people were starving inside the walls. And the people got so crazed with hunger, so beside themselves, they, they even ate each other. They turned to cannibalism. Jeremiah talks about this, and some of the other prophets. It was a terrible time. Well, Jesus is saying these things will happen again uh, in, in, in the end, in the, in the last day, when, when people, when the powers of this world are unleashed against each other. But he holds out this great hope in verse 13. He says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he, he who endures to the end will be saved. And so Christians... From this time forth, went forward with the idea that, that yes, there would be persecution in their lives, but the point was, or the, the key was to not lose our heads, but to endure, that God would take care of us. And those who, like Stephen, those who died under the stones or under the assaults of men, they did, their eyes were opened, and even as they died, they saw the heavens open before them and the smile of God coming down upon them. So... Um, this is a, a wonderful passage that <clears throat> speaks of, of the, the long atonement history that was going to end with our Lord Jesus Christ and God's efforts to save us from our sin and then his warnings that, that we better heed this and if we didn't, that, that we, we could come under the judgment too. Today, today in a few hours, well, it'll be probably eight, about eight, eight, uh, eight, uh, eight hours from now, there is a, a, flame, a famous sled dog race which is starting in Anchorage, Alaska. You've probably heard of it. It's called the Iditarod. That's starting today. And the Iditarod celebrates a famous uh, sled dog escapade that took place in 1925. And it's, it's, it was remarkable then, but it reminds us of all that the Lord did for us. The first, the Iditarod was done uh, out of mercy for men, but not necessarily in the Lord's day, name. But what was done by Jesus Christ was definitely done in the Lord's name. In 1925, in the city of Nome, Alaska, which is on, if you think of Alaska bulging out here from the Canadian super super part of the, of the upper continent. 
Uh, Nome, is, Nome is a city right on the sea on the west coast near north, northwest Alaska. It was made famous by various gold rushes. And it was a city on the coast that was a destination point for many of the people that came up for the gold rush. Nome was not a huge city. It, it numbered only some hundreds at this time. I think 400 people it, it had in it at this time. But in 1925, a, an outbreak was discovered in Nome of diphtheria, which was a deadly disease at that time, and which they had a cure for. They had a serum for diphtheria, but if you did not get the spear serum, the odds are that you would die. And so in this remote outpost of Alaska, suddenly this disease breaks forth. And the doctor in Nome, there weren't that many of them, but they, they were pretty good because if you were the only guy or the only of a few guys, you had to know your stuff. The, the doctor went and he realized that the diphtheria serum that they had on store there in Nome was already out of date and would be probably no good and could be harmful. And so as soon as he realized that there was a diphtheria outbreak, he cabled uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, he said, we have this terrible outbreak of diphtheria. We need help. We don't know what we can do. And uh, they, they could communicate fairly quickly in 1925. The telegraph system was fairly sophisticated. So this message goes from remote northwest Alaska to Washington, D. Washington, the doctors in Washington, D.C., the Department of Health, quickly made a, quickly made a search. They found out that there was uh, sufficient serum in Anchorage, Alaska, which was the capital, to, to get there. But uh, this was 1925. There were no roads, and the, even the, 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 the uh, airplanes were more primitive. And it was in the middle of the winter. It was, it was late January 1925. And uh, the, it, they, shipping was the most secure way to send these things, but there was no time because this disease was discovered and the disease could run rampant in a matter of days. And so uh, Washington sent a message to Anchorage to, to find a way to get, there's about 30 pounds, 20 or 30 pounds of serum that they needed to get to Nome in a matter of days. And they found the only way that it could be done, they, they put the serum on a train north of Anchorage. It got basically about a third of the way up through Alaska. And then on the last stop, the closest site, the closest place to Nome was this trail that had been populated by or used by the gold traders uh, that went over to Nome. Of course, now it's the dead of winter. And the only way that they could get it there was by sled dog. And so what they, what they did was they, they worked out a, a relay team. And so you can imagine this being done by telegraph in these days. And they, 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 they got 20 teams of uh, sledders, mushers, uh, from uh, uh, Ninana, I think it was, um, um, uh, to Nome. And so they were able to they were able to erect these relay team of sled doggers starting in Nanana, and uh, and then 
they ran 24-7 through the night to try to get this serum to save the city of Nome. And that's what they that's what they did. There were 20, 20 teams. There were more than 100 dogs that were involved in this. And um, I can read you a little bit about this. It was called, the, at the time, it was called the Great Race of Mercy. And um, uh, the, the nearest antitoxin was found to be in Anchorage nearly 1,000 miles away. Uh, but they, uh, to get the antitoxin to Nome, sled dogs had to be used for part of the journey as planes, planes could not be used and trip ships would be too slow. Um, the the, the uh, 20-pound cylinder of serum was sent by train to 300 miles, basically, uh, from the southern port of Seward, where the train ran from, to Nanana, where just before midnight on January 27th, it was passed uh, to the first of 20 mushers and more than 100 dogs who relayed the package almost 700 miles. Uh, the, the dogs ran in relays an average of 31 miles each, with no dog running over 100 miles. Um, a Norwegian musher, Gunnar Kassen, and his lead dog, Balto, arrived on Front Street in Nome on February 2nd, uh, 5.30 a.m., uh, just five and a half days later. The two became media celebrities, and a statue of Balto was erected in Central Park in New York City in 1925, where it has become one of the most popular tourist attractions. I, I, ha I have to think of the common grace of this, because these people were not raving evangelicals, but this, this was a day in our history where, where people were more concerned about each other. So to find out that there was the possibility of the whole city of Nome being wiped out by this disease coalesced the people's opinions and the determinations, you know. Now, this is a, a time in the winter when uh, the sun does not come up. So these guys station themselves at different sections along this trail. Some of them, you know, they lived in little hamlets, but they were mushers and sled doggers. The message got through, and they stationed themselves. And so as soon as one team would arrive, another team would leave. They ran these sled dogs. I just, to me, it's just amazing. 24-7, for five and a half days, men determined to get this stuff to know with the idea they were all alone for all of this time in this freezing, freezing weather. And the dogs are running hour after hour after hour, there's to no applause, you know, to no lights along the way other than the lights of the sky that God will provide. And finally, five and a half days later, early in the morning, was it four or five in the morning, they said, the, the serum arrived in Nome, and they were able to give this life-giving serum to the people of Nome, and they saved the city. And that's commemorated today by the sled dog race that they do, they still do, as a commemoration of this event. Well, whatever the heroism is of this day, of this earlier day, can we compare it to the heroism of our Lord Jesus Christ and the long, arduous journey that he made to supply us with this life-giving serum? 
The temple originally could not save us from our sin. It prefigured that. It made a picture of it in the sacrifices, but the sacrifices themselves were of no good. They were like the serum of gnome that wouldn't work. But the serum of Christ, the serum that our Lord Jesus brought, that he was born as easy as he was born a baby, and developed this serum throughout his life in terms of his works of righteousness, and then delivered finally by dying for our sin. This could save us, this can save us, and this does save us from our sin. And whatever heroism we think, and I, I, it brings me to tears to think of these men going through this, 20 teams of men running day and night, day and night through the frozen wilderness, of Alaska to get this stuff through. And if they'd had a single accident where they were put off, you know, it would have been a major, a major tragedy. But God, in his providence, allowed them to get through, all of them through this dangerous journey. He delivered, they delivered it, and the people were saved. And so, in a meticulous fashion, the Son of God does this for us. Can we, can we believe the wonder of it? Can we appreciate the beauty of the work of Christ? He was an improvement over the temple. He made that work, which had been portrayed by the temple, but he made it work, not just symbolically, ceremonially acted out, but it actually worked. And even today, you and I can be saved from our sins by casting ourselves upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The achievement, his achievement of righteousness and his paying the penalty for our sin. And if we cast our faith upon that, we are saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ye shall be saved, the Bible says. And when we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying believe on his righteousness, his works of righteousness. And believe on his sin bearing at the cross. These two things. We can't just believe nebulously or confusedly about Christ. We must know what he's done. But if we know what he's done and we believe on that, then we can be saved. We will be saved, the Bible says. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank thee that thou dost exist. And we even thank thee for thy wrath as was seen in the raising of the temple. But we thank thee that before the temple was raised, thou raised up another temple, a new temple, based on the Lord Jesus Christ, that was much more efficient and much more effective than the ancient temple was. Even though people despised Christ and despised his work, and they continued to hang on to the temple superstitiously, you finally took that away from them. You would not allow their superstition to continue as they believed in something that was no good anymore. Thou didst leave only one erect building left. That was the building that Christ built. The, the building of true salvation, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us in him, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.